Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is session one of Four Foundations of Flowering Faith, a weekly podcast series. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. Today's session is the actual Sunday School class that was recorded on January 19, 2020. Blessings and enjoy. We're going to look at three characteristics that you all already know he has, but the freshness of the relevance to us, his omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. So omni means all or universal. The word means all. And so we look at these three words that apply to God, omnipresent, means that he's everywhere at once. Omniscient means that he knows everything. And omnipotent means that he's all-powerful. So that is an awful lot of things to comprehend about God. I was trying to think, is there a story in Scripture that really speaks to the heart of all of these three characteristics of God. We're going to go today to Daniel 2. We'll do a little background in Daniel Daniel 1 first. But come with me to 586 or 587 B.C. And the greatest city on earth is the city of Babylon. It's about, oh, 50, 60 miles to the southwest of where Baghdad is today. And it's the first population in the entire world to be over 200,000 in a single city. And now it's got the greatest king it's ever had, and his name is Nebuchadnezzar. He hasn't been on the throne very long. God has had it with Judah. You know, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been taken captive by Assyria years before. But Judah was left as a sovereign nation, which was really composed of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And many of their kings were so wicked that the Lord finally allowed them to be overtaken by their enemies. And Nebuchadnezzar sends an army, and they besiege Jerusalem, And then they burn it down, and oh, Solomon's temple. It had been standing for 500 years, this marvelous, beautiful structure. But the Babylonians have taken a lot of the people captive. People are killed. It's sad. And so this famous drawing here by James Tissot shows the people leaving, and the city is on fire in the background. Here you can see the map of exactly where Babylon was. I already told you it's in Iraq. And the city was about 2,500 acres. That's nearly four square miles. A lot of territory. And if you had over 200,000 people living in that space, they'd be pretty crammed together. This is an artist's conception that it's not just a wild guess on what the city actually looked like at the time. You can see the blue gate, that's the famous Ishtar gate. That was found because Babylon is now an archeological dig site. In the 20th century, maybe around 1930, 
and it is now in a museum in Berlin. It had blue glazed bricks. Here's another look at exactly where Babylon is located with respect to Baghdad and some of the other cities that are now in Iraq. And this is what it looks like from a Google Earth image that was taken by satellite. It was abandoned in about 1000 AD. So it's 586 BC and some of the young men that have been taken captive from Jerusalem include Daniel and three of his friends. Their names were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And you remember the story in Daniel 1. They were educated in the king's court, and he wanted to put them on the diet, the rich and not kosher diet, of the people who were living in the king's palace at that time, and they wanted to follow the Jewish law about foods they could eat, so they refused, and they were allowed to do a 10-day trial to see if they would still be healthy on their own diet of just vegetables. And sure enough, they flourished under that diet, and so their overseer allowed them to continue that. They had to learn all of the things that wise men need to be instructed in, and they were given new names. So Daniel was called Belteshazzar, and you know what Ananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were called, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So that's where we are, and now we get to Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So he wakes up, and he knows that this is more than just a passing dream. It has something very important to say, but the problem is, I just can't quite remember what it was. So he calls his wise men before him, and he said, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Now, he did not call Daniel and his three friends, probably because this was early in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and Daniel's education period was supposed to be three years, and it appears that he wasn't finished being educated yet. So it would be like you wouldn't call a medical student if you had a doctor available. And so they check with the senior wise men, and Daniel's left out of the picture. But the astrologers say to the king, okay, well, you tell us your dream and we'll interpret it. But the king replies to the astrologers, and he's kind of testy here. This is what I firmly decided. If you don't tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll cut you into pieces, and your houses will be turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Well, have you ever dealt with someone that was being completely unreasonable and you might as well save your breath because they're irrational and you're not going to change their mind? That was what they were dealing with here. He was angry and he was saying, you're either going to tell me my dream or I'm going to have you killed. And they tried. They said, there's not a king on earth that would ask this. You're asking for something that only the gods can do and they don't dwell with men. 
we have to know what the dream is before we can interpret it. We don't know what you dreamed. And he finally says, fine then, you're all going to be executed. And he calls for his chief executioner, Arioch, and he literally tells this man to go around and gather up everybody, and that includes the people that weren't even there, like Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Just go up and call on them cold, knock on their door, and when they come to the door, say, you're under arrest and you're going to be executed. And so that's what Arioch did, and he rounds up Daniel, he comes to Daniel's house, he knocks on his door, and the next thing Daniel knows, he's had a death sentence pronounced over him, but the scripture says that he was very wise and careful and diplomatic in the way that he answered Arioch. He didn't fly into a rage or start crying or walk around like a deer in the headlights in utter, utter shock. He just said, why is the king being so hasty? And this causes Arioch to tell him the entire story about, well, what happened was the king had a dream and no one can tell him what it was and he can't remember it, so he's going to have everyone killed. So Daniel himself was somehow able to get before the king and ask for some time. And it was granted. And he and his friends get together and pray. It says in verse 18, he urged them to plead for mercy. That's his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. From the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Now, what on earth does this have to do with God being omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent? Well, when he wakes up, he makes the most marvelous statement about the Lord when he realizes he gave it to me. I have it. I know what it is. This is what he says in Daniel 2 verses 19 to 23. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom, that would be knowledge, understanding, and power are his. There's two of the three right there. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. And here we go. Here's the omnipresence. He knows what lies in darkness because he's there. And because nothing is hidden from him, he's everywhere and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You've given me wisdom and power. You've made known to me what we asked of you. You've made known to us the dream of the king. And here's a famous master painting of that scene when he goes and tells Arioch, I've got it, I've got it, I know what the dream means. And Arioch goes before the king and he says, I found a man who can tell you what your dream means. And so he hastily is brought before the king and he tells him the entire thing. I thought you might just be interested in the interpretation of this because it was prophecy and some of it has yet to come true and a bunch of it already has come true. And it's the whole, basically the history of the world since the time of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's marvelous. So 
I'll tell you about that in a minute, but it's so interesting because after he explains to the king his dream, apparently the king immediately remembers, oh yeah, that's right, yes, that's it, yes, I believe that is what I dreamed. Oh, and that's what it means. And so Daniel says to him, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. In other words, you know, before when you were talking to the wise men, you really were being unreasonable. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. And he goes on to telling that he dreamed of this great statue with all of these different materials. There was a gold head and a, a silver a breast and arms, and then there was an abdomen of brass, and then there were legs of iron, and then feet that were partly iron and clay mixed together, and a stone was cut out of the nearby mountain, except it wasn't cut with human hands, and it came over and knocked over the statue, and then it grew to fill the whole earth. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. And then he gives him the interpretation. This was the dream, and now we'll interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. Not the title you would give God, but he was the king of the kings of that day. He was the greatest king living in the world. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he's placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he's made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Well, let me just show you about that head of gold. The Babylonian Empire, I mean, Babylon was actually a city as far back as 2300 BC, I guess you could call it a small town. But by the time you get to Daniel's age, it was the greatest thing that the earth had to offer. And you can see that it was the capital of an entire empire that stretches clear to what is about the border of Iran and clear down to Egypt and north clear to Turkey and taking up Assyria, a marvelous place. But then he goes on to say, after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. So after Nebuchadnezzar's death, just a couple of kings later, rose up Cyrus, king of Persia. Now he's been in the media lately, you may have heard that there's been controversy among Christians, and it came out in an article, actually a, um, an editorial in Christianity Today, people's opinions of our president, uh, Donald Trump. And some were saying that supported him because of some of his policies, that he was like Cyrus of Persia. Have you heard that before? The reason they're saying that is because of what happened in the book of Daniel. But whether you agree with that or not, Cyrus, the king of Persia, is that silver part of the statue. And he came along 
later and he was favorable to Israel. He was not really a servant of the Lord, but he was God-fearing and he got messages from the Lord which he obeyed. And one of those was that he allowed the Jews that had been captive for 70 years in Babylon to go back home and to rebuild Jerusalem and also to rebuild the temple. And that's what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about in the Old Testament. Anyway, you can see that this map of the Persian Empire goes way beyond what I just showed you for the map of Babylon. In other words, Iran conquered Iraq back then. So that was the silver part of the statue. And then we continue on. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, next a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Well, I don't know if you can see the tiny print, but it says their belly and thighs of brass. That was the Greek empire from about 331 BC to about 168 BC. You've heard of Alexander the Great. Did you know that his tutor was Aristotle? His dad was assassinated when he was about 20 years old, and so he became the king of all of Greece and that empire. And by the time he was 30 years old, he had conquered just about the whole known world. Look how much territory, even more than the Persian Empire. And he was dead by the time he was 33. But he was a ruthless and a brilliant military general and a, a strong ruler. Then he comes along as Daniel continues to tell him about the dream and he says there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of the iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. Just as you saw, the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Well, that was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire came into full swing a little before Jesus was born in 27 BC, and it covered 1.7 million square miles. Look at all of that. Isn't that Remarkable. And it was ruled, you know, by the emperor or the Caesar. But here's the interesting thing. You know how a human body branches into two legs after you get past the abdomen. And in the same way, this Roman Empire, here's another look at it, was so large and so unwieldy, and they were in a low-tech age, that they determined that it was easier to rule it under two governors with kind of two capitals. And so there was Rome and then there was Constantinople. And so it was two parts of the same overarching entity. 
And that was all iron, the legs were iron, but then you get down to the feet and the feet are partly iron and partly clay. Isn't that so very interesting? And uh, here's the stone breaking up the whole statue. That's still to come. That stone is Christ. But the feet, partly iron and partly clay, there are varying interpretations about exactly what that is. Is that Catholic Europe, but the fact that those European countries are not completely Catholic and uh, secularism or Islam has infiltrated, or does it refer to a future uh, European Union that only has 10 nations instead of the 28 that it has now? We're not exactly sure. There may be a gap in the prophecy, in the story, between the legs and the feet. But I love how Daniel finishes up what he says about what's to come. He says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven, listen to this, will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Are you listening? The body of Christ, the kingdom of God, this is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain. What a beautiful picture of Christ. The, the rock, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. But okay, are, is this a a lesson about prophecy or are we supposed to be talking about the three attributes of God? Well, after he hears what the dream was and what it means, King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And then the king placed Daniel in a high position, and he lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, he appointed Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, administrators over the whole province of Babylon, and David remained at the royal court. So this particular story in Daniel 2 is one of the best stories in the Bible, in my opinion, for telling us all the things about God that have to do with omni, omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. Let me show you some more things about omnipresent. Psalm 139, beautiful passage. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of this sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. 
Did you see what we've already highlighted so far? You are there. You are there. The darkness won't be dark to you. That sounds to me like he's everywhere, omnipresent. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as night to you. That's what Daniel said after he woke up and he realized that God had given him the dream. He said, nobody can hide in the darkness from you. Jeremiah 23, 24, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I can't see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? You see that? That's why Christians and Jews believe that God is omnipresent. What about Proverbs 15, 3? The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over the evil and the good. Or what about Hebrews 4, 13? And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, well that's fine, but I already knew that God was everywhere anyway. What was the point of coming and listening to this? What does it mean to me? It means he'll never leave you. Wherever you go, there he is. He is there for you. It's like what we read in Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Did you know that the writer of the Hebrews was quoting what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy when he said that? Beautiful. Well, how about omniscient, all-knowing? Where else in the Bible, besides these proclamations by Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, does it really say that God knows everything? Psalm 147, 5, great is our Lord and abundant in power, his understanding is beyond measure. The Apostle Paul, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him and to him are all things. You see why he's worthy of praise? What about John? He wrote in 1 John 3.20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Omniscient. All right, so here again, what does that mean to me? I already knew that God knows everything. How does that help me live a better Christian life? Remember what Jesus said in Luke 12, 7? The very hairs of your head are all numbered. That's not just a random concept. It's personal. He knows everything about you. You can't hide anything from him, even your own spouse. You could never be totally and completely intimate with anyone because they never really know everything that's going on in your mind and they never will. Only God knows that. And he cares about those details. He's omniscient, and that means he knows. And then finally, omnipotence. Okay, where does it really say in the Bible that God can do everything? Well, I'll just tell you the verses. Psalm 147, I don't know why I'm not listening. But, sorry. 
That same verse we were just reading, great is our Lord and abundant in power. Or what about Psalm 137? I love it that Jesus, uh, when his birth was being foretold, first John the Baptist was born and the angel was speaking to Zechariah in the temple and Zechariah was saying, oh, my life and my old, how will this be? And the angel said to Zechariah, nothing shall be impossible with God. Jeremiah 32, 17, Oh, Lord God, it's you who've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And the last one in Ephesians, Now to him who is able to do, you know this verse, exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, that sounds like omnipotence to me. This is why it matters. This is why it's personal. It's not that, oh yeah, he can do everything. He can do anything I need him to do that brings glory to his name. He's able, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. 